Welcome to uh, Basecamp Beta episode 29. Christ. 29. Okay. Uh, with me, Chris. Me, Sean. This is the other Chris. And Katie. And today we're going to do a bit of a different uh, format. We're going to read an essay. We've all read an essay and we're going to talk about it. Ideas. Yeah, we're, this is, uh, what is this, reading club? Yeah, book, book club. club. Theory club. But it's like a book club, but like the book is like 10 pages. Yeah. So yeah. that's how long books yeah. are, right? I'm glad that I only had to read five pages. and I did it within an hour and even wrote some notes down because I'm in some other book clubs right now and that's like hundreds of pages. And Are those other book clubs called school? There's that too, but no, I'm in a psychoanalytic, like clinical readings of like Freud and Lacan texts mm-hmm. and it's too much reading and I can't keep up with it to be honest, but I'm just happy to show up to my, you know, we meet like once a month. I actually finished a novel for the first time in literally years. Oh, wow. Um, really? A couple of months ago. Isn't that a good feeling? It's an extraordinary feeling. <laughs> what was the novel? The novel was Roadside Picnic by the Stragatsky, oh, yeah. Stragatsky brothers, which was the source of the film Stalker. And as it so often happens, the novel is way better than the movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I think they're to- two totally different animals. Uh, I mean, sure they are, but also... The stalker, the film adaptation goes in whack directions, to be totally honest, in my I opinion. Mean, it's definitely it's its thing. It does the stalker it's its thing. thing. It's its yeah. thing. I don't but know the if book I've seen it. Was, Wait, what is it? Stalker. It's a it's like a classic Russian sci-fi. It's three hours long. Low and long. Andre Tarkovsky. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's one of those things that I should have watched by now, but haven't. You don't yeah. need to. You'll get to it. You'll get, get to it. it. No shame in not watching movies. I've been watching so many movies like that I should have seen when I was 15 this year and I'm only getting around to now. Wait, yeah. you were 15 this year? I was 15 this year, yeah. <laughs> Milestone birthday. COVID's, COVID's young into Saul. It really has. I'm surprised though, Chris, because yeah, I've, it's funny. I've talked about this with other friends, but I feel like I'm reading more than ever. That's huh. great. That's good. I mean, are I you, am reading more than ever. What are you reading? Are you reading novels or like... A mix. I'm reading, okay. I'm, I'm like now two thirds of the way through Capital. And then I've been reading a lot of Inspector Maigret novels. I don't so, know what that is. He's a is French that? detective. They're all just like short, pulpy French okay. detective novels. Okay. Um, That's definitely one of the things that I've been doing. I've been essentially doing three things during COVID. One, playing video games. Two, video games are cool. Eating. I've been eating a lot. I'm eating a whole lot. Have you been cooking or just eating? Both. Both. <laughs> but more eating than cooking, that's for sure. <laughs> and three, I've been sitting on the couch, listening to records and reading, which has oh, actually yeah. been great. Great, great thing. That's it's like, great. That's the fucking vibe right there. Yeah. And it's like, I, I haven't done that in so long because I'm terminally online. And so I... And I'm still even more online than ever, but it's like a brief respite to not look at my phone. For are you, like are you still minutes. up on Facebook? You're the king of Facebook still? 
I have stopped posting on Facebook almost entirely, wow. except for shit posting memes in a specific Facebook group. That's where my practice has evolved. <laughs> really nice. But yeah, I am no longer posting on Facebook like I used to. What prompted that? Kind of a confluence of things. COVID, the music world disappearing made me realize that like I was just using Facebook to promote all sorts of music shit. And I was like, wow, this really doesn't matter anymore, does it? Also, Facebook just being a terrible, horrible organism that is damaging all of our brains and our society, kind of a part of my calculus. So, Chris, tell so, us about this piece by Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher, who I guess just a brief introduction to Mark Fisher. What could we say about Mark Fisher? Was he a cultural theorist? Is that a, he was K-punk? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, but, but uh, he was I think I think Mark Fisher was it is interesting because he created a space for himself that didn't really exist until he started building that space, which is like a critical theorist and philosopher and a cultural writer. But he started as a blogger. And I think that's what makes him really interesting is that sure. yeah. his work and yeah. his writing is so totally rooted in internet culture in a way that really not many philosophers, quote unquote, who came before him. Tied, tied to the blog form. Exactly. Yeah, and tied to the specific music blog form. Was he a music journalist? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, a, I don't a, think he was. I think he was okay. in academia, I think. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to ask. But he clearly was, loved music. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, was he affiliated with any institution? So he probably did have some kind. Yes. He, was, he, was, he was a teacher. Yeah. 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 And he was also part of the, what is it, C Crew. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cybernetic culture research unit yeah. i believe yes which spawned noted dubstep pioneer steve goodman code nine yeah yep. and did it also spawn nick land yeah, sure or? it also yeah. spawned noted neo-fascist nick land so, so a bit of a grab bag problematic the, uh c crew legacy but code nine and mark fisher are cool so you know yeah we'll run with that but yeah so he blogged under the name k-punk for many years blogs so um, retro i know he was really documenting a lot of that sort of emerging dubstep kind of thing in the mid to late 2000s very tied into that kind of particularly british sound he yeah eventually yeah i think chris you said it really well he created this own space for himself where he could talk about music and pull in critical theory and some of his other, I don't know, larger themes and talk about those on the blog. And eventually there are a couple of books he published. His most notable one is probably Capitalist Realism, which might be good to go in on a different show, even though it is only very tangentially related to music. But that's a highly recommended read about his idea of capitalist realism, which kind of ties into the whole Margaret Thatcher, Tina, there is no alternative kind of thing the idea that late capitalism precludes any even imagining of something beyond it fisher also published a book called the weird and the eerie which i read earlier this year which i highly recommend just a lot of interesting writings on trying to get to the bottom of these two moods let's say in art weirdness and eeriness talks a lot about lovecraft picnic at hanging rock all sorts of other 
cultural products that people like us tend to gravitate towards. And then there is the book from which the essay we're talking about today was pulled. The book is called Ghosts from My Life, Writings on Depression, Hauntology, and Lost Futures. And today we're going to talk about the first essay from that book, which is called The Slow Cancellation of the Future. The essay starts with a quote, there's no time here, not anymore. And he talks about this British television show, Sapphire and Steel, which is seems typical of 70s BBC dramas. It's a sort of sci-fi show that's a bit lo-fi in its production, probably had a very nice, interesting sort of electronic radiophonic score. But it concerns these two characters, Sapphire and Steel, and they're a kind of futuristic detectives or something and the first every british show isn't every british show about a futuristic detective they're all about detective or detective that's the all the shows right i don't think they're quite septuagenarian in this show but they are the sort of british detective but with uh i don't know a tinfoil shirt or something first interesting quote from this fisher talks about him seeing the last episode of this show, Sapphire and Steel. And he says, it was August 1982, and I had just turned 15 years old. It would be more than 20 years later before I would see these images again. By then, thanks to DVD, VHS, and YouTube, it seemed that practically everything was available for re-watching. In conditions of digital recall, loss is itself lost. And... He takes that idea, and throughout the opening part of this, he talks a little bit about the show itself and his relationship to the show. And then he says, down near the bottom of this sort of introductory part of the essay, one aim of Sapphire and Steel was to transpose ghost stories out of the Victorian context and into contemporary places, the still inhabited or the recently abandoned. In the final assignment, Sapphire and Steel arrive at a small service station. Corporate logos, Access, 7-Up, Castrol GTX, LV, are placed on the windows and the walls of the garage and the adjoining cafe. This halfway place is a prototype version of what the anthropologist Mark Auger would call a 1995 book of the same title, Non-Places, or the generic zones of transit, such as retail parks and airports, which will come to increasingly dominate the spaces of late capitalism. In truth, the modest service station in Sapphire and Steel is quaintly idiosyncratic compared to the clone generic monoliths, which will proliferate besides motorways over the coming 30 years. Now, I find this quote interesting because, of course, this sort of brings to mind the most famous airport music situation, Brian Eno's music for airports, and even Eno's definition of ambient music as this sort of music for non-places. He kind of sees ambient music as soundtracking these spaces that when he he made the record didn't quite exist. I mean, airports obviously existed, but this sort of thing that Fisher's trying to get at here, the non-place, the the sort of you're in an airport, but you could be anywhere. My favorite one is music for retail spaces. That's my concept album, or that's my unmade ambient album (laughs) it's ambient but it's all also like handbag house yeah pretty much it's a it's handbag house put through a granular sampler and (laughs) maybe some max msp 
my reaction after reading that passage, Chris, immediately I started thinking about how ever since COVID, the downtown part of San Francisco has become a non-place and how it ever since COVID, the almost overnight gutting of the downtown core has completely changed the way I think about the city of San Francisco and even about my relationship to the city itself. I used to work downtown. I used to work in an, in, a, in an office downtown. I used to eat lunch down there. And now all those spaces are literally pointless. The, right. the offices are empty. The restaurants that serve that served all these office workers are gone. And now that work from home is becoming at least semi-permanent for a lot of people, I literally don't know what the future of the downtown core is going to be. And no I, more and sweet I, green, hopefully. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. Is, isn't, isn't the sweet green kind of a non-place? I mean, it, what is. I think, it is. What it I is. think Fisher's getting at more is that this is like over the summer doing weird shit like biking my biking through Midtown and biking in the middle of fucking Sixth Avenue, like with no cars. That was weird. But to what extent was, I think, this idea of the non-place that Fisher's talking about, I think Midtown Manhattan, downtown San Francisco were already non-places. Right. You could stand on the street corner and it didn't really matter where you were. You saw the same fucking right. sweet green that you saw everywhere else. It always reminded me of when I was a kid, I would go to whatever on vacation to European cities or whatever. And you'd go to the center of the city and it's always the same shit in every city. And they all look the same, but it's all like the same. There's like a, a Burberry and an H&M and some fucking expensive like Zvarovsky or something. And all like the center, whether you're in Vienna or in whatever, Strasbourg or fucking anywhere, they all look the exact same. And, and that kind of, especially through neoliberalism, came really came to the U.S. over and, and really took over the past 40 years. We, I think, talked on our coronavirus episode way back when I think we talked about the disappearance of locality, the disappearance of everything becoming chain stores. So it's probably going to get worse. But to what extent was that dynamic already there? Well, I think this is something different altogether because the way that remote work has so has just so rapidly changed people's relationship to urban spaces I don't think there's really ever been any kind of precedent like that in human history. Certainly yeah. back in the pandemic of 1918. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, like other like, oh, well, the plague probably did something similar. But I think we're experiencing... Well, not really, because no one knew it was urbanity that caused the problem with the plague, right? I mean, no one knew that it was the fact that they lived in close quarters with each other, and that's oh, why right, they were all right. getting sick. Yeah, I suppose they never actually figured out that they shouldn't be, like, spitting and pissing on each other or right. whatever they were doing back then. But I feel like we are undergoing a real-time reconfiguration of urban spaces. Yeah, definitely. Like almost has never happened before in human history. And it's like, what is the purpose of the downtown core? What, what is the purpose of Midtown Manhattan if right. 80% of the people who used to be there every day for commerce are not there? Well, I think it's just back to what its actual purpose has been over the past 40 years, which is just uh, a place for people to park their money in real estate. I don't think that's I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true because that real estate is becoming 
it's not potentially worthless. That's true. Like That's a- rents in downtown cores are like plummeting. Have they been? I've been really hoping that they have, but I haven't seen them. I, I've been assuming that they will, but I haven't really seen it move as much as I thought it would have. Are you like I'm talking about commercial like businesses commercial are evacuating downtown spaces almost yeah. everywhere. And so that's yeah. going to permanently change those spaces, property value, how we use them. I would love to think that we're going to come to some kind of new urban renaissance where we figure right. out what to do with these. They're all huge. going to be indoor garden spaces. It's going to be, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> They're all going to be worker owned co-ops. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. Nice. I, don't, I don't have a good feeling about it. We can dream. I do feel like we're in the midst of this experiment as it's happening and we don't know. Yeah, it's weird. I have no idea which way it's going to go because it could go that way. It could go like, oh, well, shit, the moneyed people flee because there's no, yeah, like you're saying, rents are going down. But then at the same time, everything else is collapsing too. And the first places to collapse are the, you know, local ones. The larger chains can toughen. Well, out. Hey, hey cheesesteak factories, uh, cheese, cheese, cheesecake factory is done, right? Not cheesesteak. Cheese let's steak let's go to the cheesesteak factory. That sounds way better. That's a, that's a Freudian splurge. <laughs> yeah, let me get a cheesecake with whiz. <laughs> that, that, that's fucked up, man. A little, you know, cheesecake, a little, a little fucking whiz just uh, oh, piped around the perimeter. I'm imagining just a cheesecake, a nice- sweet but whizzy cake. A whiz cake. <laughs> Disgusting. Nasty. I think part of what Fisher is writing about here, especially with this kind of early introductory part where he's talking about Sapphire and Steel, is that uh, nostalgia no longer means or functions the way that it used to in our society because terminal onlineness means that everything happens so much all the time, constantly. And certainly I feel this literally oppressive weight of information and just everything all the time. Sure, yeah. I'll read, read the next bit here where he goes into that a bit more. Fisher says, at the service station where, where Sapphire and Steel are, there is a temporal bleed through from earlier periods. Images and figures from 1925 and 1948 keep appearing. So that, as Sapphire and Steel's colleague Silver puts it, time just got mixed up, jumbled up, together, making no sort of sense. Anachronism, the slippage of discrete time periods into one another, was throughout the series the major symptom of time breaking down. In one of the earlier assignments, Steele complains that these temporal anomalies are triggered by human beings' predilection for the mixing of artifacts from different eras. In this final assignment, the anachronism has led to stasis, Time has stopped. The service station is in a pocket, a vacuum. So yeah, I mean, this speaks to your, and this is something Fisher will unwrap even further in the essay, but this sort of simultaneous ability and access to everything throughout all time creates this sort of oppressive and dislocating thing where you don't feel like you're part of some you don't the feel timeless like era, in, he says, neither belonging to the past or the present. Yeah. That's what he says. Yeah, exactly. You feel like this sort of, yeah, this like, what, what, yeah, this jumble of time. Yeah, I was gravitating towards the Frederick Jameson reading of the nostalgia mode 
which was that this, uh, the formal attachment to the techniques and formulas of the past were actually aligned with a yearning for a form. So this idea of a form is like completely gone in, in this late capitalist sphere that we're in. I don't know if we're still in, to be honest, but. Yeah. Um, what kind of form? What does form mean here? Fisher writes, it's important to be clear about what Jameson means by the nostalgia mode. He is not referring to psychological nostalgia. Indeed, the nostalgia mode, as Jameson theorizes, is meant, it might be said to preclude psychological nostalgia since it arises only when a coherent sense of historical time breaks down. The kind of figure capable of, of exhibiting and expressing a yearning for the past belongs actually to a paradigmatically modernist moment. Think, for instance, of Proust's or Joyce's ingenious exercises in recovering lost time. Jameson's nostalgia mode is better understood in terms of a formal attachment to the techniques and formulas of the past, a consequence of a retreat from the modernist challenge of innovating cultural forms adequate to contemporary experience. Um, and then he goes on to talk about body heat. I, what I think is interesting is what we're talking about, whether it's the sort of non-places that we were talking about or this sort of non-time, it's this sort of this breakdown both in space and time of this sort of, I, I don't know quite how, he might be using form here, but it, you're cut, you're trapped in this place where there is no context to where you are in time and space. You don't feel necessarily locked into a certain... Would you describe that as anxiety? Is that a symptom? I wonder, <laughs> is that... Oh, yeah, it's in the next section when he talks about Star Wars because he basically talks right. about how that's a postmodern anachronism because it's basically using technology to obfuscate its archaic form, meaning like it's actually a right. Western, but it's this postmodern space futuristic Western when it really the whole storyline and plot plays out in this da- right, dated gets, narrative way. Yeah, that gets into his sort of Fisher talks a bit later about this sort of fetishism of the future and stuff, the future not being the future, but rather just a way, yeah, like you just said, to obscure in the, Next section, which is called The Slow Cancellation of the Future, Fisher starts out by saying, it is the contention of this book that 21st century culture is marked by the same anachronism and inertia which affected Sapphire and Steel in their final adventure. But this stasis has been buried, interred behind a superficial frenzy of newness or perceptual movement. This jumbling up of time, the montaging of earlier eras, has ceased to be worthy of comment. It is now so prevalent that no law that it is no longer even noticed. And he gets into Franco Berardi here, who coins this term, the slow cancellation of the future. And Fisher says then later, the immediate temptation here is to fit what I'm saying into a weirdly familiar narrative. It is a matter of the old failing to come to terms with the new, saying it was better in their day. Yet it is just this picture with its assumption that the young are automatically at the leading edge of cultural change that is now out of date. Now, that's a pretty big... Tim, this is him full on in Principal Skinner meme. Is it the kids who are wrong? Or or is it me that's wrong or is it the kids? No, it's the kids who are wrong. This is Fisher being like old white guy who's out of touch, man. This is ridiculous. (laughs) Which parts of this essay that point directly to that, yeah. When did Fisher pass? When did he die? He took his own life, I believe. I think it was 2015, if I remember correctly. 16 or 16, yeah. Yeah. 
I just feel like if he had been able to stick around for a little while longer, he would have had some really interesting things to say about a lot of what has happened in the past four years. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. There's a part of this that is really absolutely old man yells at the kids. Also the vampire's castle thing, too, which just it was sure it was totally out of touch, totally a bitter old white guy. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. I think I think, I think Vampire's Castle was absolutely like bitter, out of touch guy. I hate that piece. It's, Should huh. we save that for another episode? I feel like yeah, I, that could. That's it, a whole can of worms. If we open va- Vampire's Castle, we're opening a whole fucking. It, it, it's yeah. definitely a, some worms in there. But I do think I. It's hard to. I don't know. It's hard to say that the youth aren't at the sort of forefront of culture right now. Yeah, I mean. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, at the forefront of culture, you said? Yeah, that's what it yeah, seems like yeah, to no, me. I mean, I, like, it, it's funny because I got in an argument with Simon Reynolds on, in, back in the Facebook days in a friend's thread about... Is this a humble brag? Oh. It's really important. <laughs> Reynolds and Fisher both have this, yeah, this retromania narrative thing, which they really cling to. And uh, Reynolds was, it was a, th- a friend's thread about subculture. I can't remember the context exactly, but Reynolds was just like subculture doesn't exist anymore and complaining about like the kids. This was in the Tumblr era, like the, kind of the beginning of like peak Tumblr. And I was like, there's all this stuff happening. that's totally new. There, there, there's all of these micro subcultures. Identity is totally plastic. People are forging new subcultures by the minute, like they reforming them. Like this is like, maybe you don't like it. It's happening. This is a real thing. And he was like, it's not real. These aren't real subcultures. They're not real tribal. Af- There's no real tribal affiliation. But yeah, it was just like so, it was so weird and out of touch. When I look at uh, like all the bizarre subcultures that are around now, they seem totally like identifiable. As an outsider looking in, I'm like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm cool with it. But <laughs> it's clearly not. I'm clearly not a part of it. So <laughs> right. you, you do you. But it seems very clearly defined. For him, it was just more about like, that there was no quote unquote tribal affiliation that, that, that they weren't putting mm-hmm. their life on the line for it. Not in the, not the way we did. Yeah. That sounds very, we grew up in a, with well, that, a very that's what, coherent that's what social welfare net. That's what I know. take away from Fisher here too, is this yeah. very, this very like, uh, like it, all of these like acrobatics to rationalize why like music just isn't as good as it used to. The stooges are never going to happen again. Oh, fuck off. Which is not to say that, which, and I think it's important to say here that we can quibble with lots of parts of the essay and also find interesting things in it. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's good stuff here, but yeah, there's a, there, I just want to like, cause there's a temptation, I think still for people to be like, ah, okay, if one thing's wrong, then the rest of it, you throw it out. But, you know, I think the reason this, this essay is interesting because it brings up so many points that are still so resonant and really important towards understanding our time, which is a very different time, even though it's only 10 years later or something around that, uh, like that. I think there's kind of an implicit point in what he's saying, which he talks about the way, I think he's, I think he's writing about the way culture was constructed differently in the 70s, 80s. And we're currently in the midst of an absolute sea change in the way that culture is being constructed. And the internet has compressed the speed and the lack of distance between cultural forms in a way that is unprecedented and, for me, very hard to understand. 
Yeah. And I think that's what that's what he's trying to grapple with in this essay. Yeah, he says it's the existential terrain of cyberspace. Yeah, he gets into that a bit later. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the essay where he tries to grapple with um, with, yeah, this sort of influx of everything at the same time. And going back to the just to clear out some of this old man um, stuff, because I think it's interesting to think about and hear what he's saying, even if we disagree. But I remember at the time this being one of the bigger pulls from the essay. Fisher says, rather than recoil, than the old recoiling from the new in fear and incomprehension, what Sean is saying there about his Facebook threads, those whose expectations were formed in an earlier era are more likely to be startled by the sheer persistence of recognizable forms. Nowhere is this clearer than in popular music culture. It was through the mutations of popular music that many of of those of us who grew up in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s learned to measure the passage of cultural time. But faced with the 21st century music, it is the very sense of future shock which has disappeared. This is quickly established by performing a simple thought experiment. Imagine any record released in the past couple years being beamed back in time to, say, 1995 and played on the radio. It's hard to think that it would produce any jolt in the listeners. On the contrary, what would be likely to shock our 1995 audience would be the very recognizability of the sounds. Would music really have changed so little in the next 17 years? Contrast this with the rapid turnover of styles between the 1960s and the 90s. Play a jungle record from 1993 to someone in 1989 and it would have sounded like something so new that it would have challenged them to rethink what music was or could be. While 20th century experimental culture was seized by a recombination recombinatorial delirium, which made it feel as if newness was infinitely available, the 21st century is oppressed by a crushing sense of finitude and exhaustion. It doesn't feel like the future, or alternatively, it doesn't feel as if the 21st century has started yet. We remain trapped in the 20th century, just as Sapphire and Steel were incarcerated by, in their roadside cafe. Incarcerated? Now, well, Think so about this. I, my immediate reaction there is if Mark Fisher heard 100 Gex, he would eat his <laughs> words times a thousand. Okay, I, mean, I haven't heard 100 Gex, so you're going to have to you're going to have to unpack it, that it a is bit. really it is really something. Wait, what is that? 100 Gex. 100 Gex. I, I don't know what this gex. is either, but so I don't even know how I would describe it in words, honestly, especially because <laughs> you're probably not going to be familiar. You're not going to be familiar with the references that it's building on it is internet meme culture in musical form literally and it's wasn't that vaporwave well, that, exactly i mean that's why i think but warner's gex is like, a, is like actually like a, a pop band right no not really it's 100 gex as well, far have, as i understand they have it 2.6 million views on youtube so exactly they're sounds, like extraordinarily popular amongst a certain cohort so and i pc music they're 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 a little bit in that hyper pop like a post uh, PC music kind of thing. Yeah, but what's interesting is they're both queer, I believe. They're like very it's very obviously made by queer people and they're referencing like the music sounds like Nightcore. Are you familiar with Nightcore? It's a terrible kind of happy hardcore analog specific to anime. So it's I love it already. I think I, I think I know what that sounds like. I yeah, think I've heard this. So imagine Dance Dance Revolution music. Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
now which was happy hardcore largely right but it was also filtered through like anime and like japanese yeah. culture so imagine dance dance revolution soundtrack but make it queer in an american midwestern way and then put like a bunch of crunchy filters on it and every song ends after two minutes that's kind of a hundred gex in a nutshell and it is so relentlessly contemporary that reading Fisher's words in that passage, I get where he's coming from, but I also am like, actually, no. I listening to a hundred gex, I'm like, this I could never have understood. I could not even have imagined it, it it existing even three years ago. It's still pointing to a retro to retro references, though. Like happy hardcore and all this DDR kind of thing is like specifically a different style of retro that we none of us ever thought would be brought about retro. again in this way right I, well, I mean what, yes what 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 reynolds and fisher both continually pine for is a return of the modernist ethic into music which is impossible what right? do you mean they, well reynolds reynolds whole thing is this kind of like proletarian modernism basically that, that the hardcore continuum is this like basically like pro, yeah proletarian avant-garde that is continually reinventing itself through kind of the development of new forms. Let's define modernism here. How are you using this? Term? Modernism as in like high modernism. This, the sort of relentless search for novelty or... No, the, the relentless search for new forms, sure. Yes. Right. This is just okay. specifically in the hardcore continuum, right? Yeah, yeah. And like, what does, what encompasses the hardcore continuum? For, for Fisher and Reynolds, like the hardcore continuum is basically like Hardcore into jungle, into garage, into grime, into dubstep. Right. And then, you know, the kind which of, doesn't make up the whole of like music culture. Kind of like but this is them this talking is what about they dance champion. music. This is what, you know, yeah. this is, yeah, this is the ideal for them. And uh, that just seems, I think, I think what, what is truly dated is that idea. Is that, is this idea? The idea that like music should be, that, that innovation and formal breaks are what define good music. To what, it, to what limit is it just a technological limit? I mean, you basically have, while they're alive, you have from the introduction of electronics in the academy, then consumer electronics in the 70s, cheaper consumer electronics in the 80s, and then basically the like samplers is the last thing. The, the, lap, um, the laptop is really the last thing. Ableton. The laptop's really the Ableton. last thing, yeah. yeah but I mean, samplers nothing, basically... There, there, there's been no there's Samplers been no do break. what the laptop do... And that's why I think jungle for a lot of people still is like the the most future because the laptop doesn't do it has more processing power. But in terms of what it in terms of purely the sounds and things that it can produce, it doesn't quite change too much what you were able to do with an Akai sampler. So I mean, yeah, you, know, you have all the granular stuff you can do with Max that like is pretty. Yeah, would be very it's hard one, to do on an Akai sampler, but you, I guess you theoretically could. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's some things like that. But to some extent, you know, this kind of comes to when I hear this kind of argument from people like Fisher or others, there's a, a sort of more diffuse argument out there or, or question of what happened to decades. We don't experience decades anymore. And that's a little bit of what he's trying to talk about right. in this essay with this sort of grinding halt of time. And there are many ways in which I think what Fisher says is very interesting in how time has come to a halt. And we'll get into that a little bit later. A sort of simpler thing is this idea of, oh, we used to have these like very defined decades and now we don't. And 
One of my reactions to that is, sure, maybe, but I also think that we still live, to be honest, in the sort of cultural framework established by boomers. The decade touchstones that I have, I think of the 50s as this sort of leave it to beaver fucking thing. I, I think of the 60s as this sort of rebellious, like teenage angst thing. I, I think of the 70s as this sort of malaise of sun-washed colors and all this shit. I think of the 80s as we know what these touchstones are. Yeah. And yet, for some reason, I have those same touchstones that my parents do. And I think culture at large is trapped in this sort of conception of time that has come to us from the boomers who basically still have a stranglehold on sure yeah yeah I, I think that's a good point maybe, maybe maybe i wouldn't blame the boomers specifically i mean we can blame whatever we want on the boomers i'm fine with that but i i think you're right that like the way we are fed mediatized images of these decades yeah is actually what creates those like we're retroactively constructing these aesthetics yeah whereas absolutely no one at the time conceived of these right things. yeah Fisher seems, yeah, caught up with this idea that like the things aren't changing, culture isn't changing, but culture's changing all the time. Yeah, like, I mean, to what extent is it just this sort of acceleration of cultural change? You know, I think seems... time is now measured in memes. That's and a very good point. I don't think about decades anymore. I think about memes, <laughs> and right. I'm not. I'm not even joking fair, about that. Yeah. And it's it's a yeah, way man. of measuring time and like space between cultural objects and this is before the cat lady mean this was after (laughs) but it also again 100 gex is a literal collision of memes it's and it could not have existed even three years years ago ago. Yeah. yeah and thinking about the way that music came to be and about the process that must have gone into creating it and also thinking about the way that the fans consume it it is 100% 100% meme culture. It's, yeah, I guess it's, Fisher didn't stick around to really uh, witness what, what became exactly. of meme culture. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. why I'm thinking like if he had been able to stick around for a, a little bit longer, I think he would have seen his own ideas refuted in ways that were really interesting. We can see what his response would have been in part through by proxy through Reynolds. And I'm not really sure what Reynolds take on all that is. I think mm-hmm. Reynolds is nowhere near as relevant as Fisher ever was, personally. I don't find he did his work, but I think he is truly stuck in the past. I seems to me like Fisher was, too, to be honest. But I, mean, I think Fisher had a better handle on the present. I think he does, later in the essay, I think he does tap into more interesting dynamics of the sort like i think he's tapping into an unease and an anxiety that sure that exactly is, yes is absolutely relevant but i don't um, think he's fixed in the way that reynolds was i do and I, th- that's why i like fisher's writing is i get i feel in his writing and an openness that i don't often feel when i read work by similar writers he is curious and open even though he's analyzing and he, he says, consider the fate of the concept of futuristic music. The futuristic in music has long since ceased to refer to any future that we expect to be different. It has become an established style, much like a particular typographical font. Invited to think of the futuristic, we still come up with, this, with something like the music of Kraftwerk, even though this is now as antique as Glenn Miller's big band jazz was when the German group began experimenting with synthesizers in the early 1970s. Where is the 21st century equivalent of craft work? 
If Kraftwerk's music came out of a casual intolerance for the already established, then the present moment is marked by its extraordinary accommodation toward the past. More than that, the very distinction between past and present is breaking down today. In 1981, the 1960s seemed much further away than they do today. Since then, cultural time has folded back on itself, and the impression of linear development has given way to a strange simultaneity. Now, the thing I think really interesting about that is that I immediately disagree with his whole thing about where's the craft work of today. That seems, I think, totally out of out of touch, and especially now. I think I think, um, I think he's very right about the fact that, um, like, the idea of the future, the and and our notions of innovation with, within music have been uh, totally aestheticized. That the future always looks the same. Yeah, I was talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago with someone on Twitter just about how our, our notions of innovation with, within music always are framed by technology for one, and they always wind up looking like Autecker. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, no, I, I, don't say anything bad about them. I'm, I'm not a diehard like you guys at all, but they're, I mean, they're great. Sure, whatever. I'm not going to hate on Autecker. That's, that's silly. My, my <laughs> retort is listen to 100 Gex. Ah. Wait, so are you actually gex. a 100 Gex fan? Well, see, that's an interesting question. It's a great question. That's a really good question. And I don't know how to answer that because listening to 100 Gex's music fills me with this kind of terror that I can't really put into words. It's a feeling of knowing in my core that the world has passed me by, that I am no longer the kind of avant-garde person that I once considered myself. Oh, okay. So you're mourning your cultural relevancy or is that a liberatory cultural relevance? Yeah. It's all these things, you know, because I listen to a hundred Gex and on the one hand, I'm like, I cannot believe that this music is being made. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe that it has 3 million listeners on YouTube and then I find myself playing the track again and being like, this is kind of catchy. Does it make a D word or whatever they're called look queen? I, I would I would rate 100 Gex far over D word. What did you think of D? Just as a side note, what did you guys think of D word when that came out? That was kind of, I think I remember it pissing me off. Uh, yeah. Was that 2010? Was that D I can't even remember 2012, I want to say. Well, see now, yeah, like imagine... Non-linearity of time, baby. <laughs> yeah. Which meme? Exactly. Wait, which, what, like, why was why were they important? Was that? Or why were they so? Why did they shake the foundation so much? Because it wasn't a. It was a completely manufactured group, or it was a fake. I have, music. There's a lot about Dietward that I think we could complain about. Including, <laughs> yeah, uh, let's not go there. <laughs> sorry, I brought it up. Very yeah. racist tropes that a lot of the sure, yeah, main dude engages in. Yeah. But no, as a yeah. whole, I just, I don't find, I never found Dantward interesting at all. I was like, okay, I didn't either. It pissed me like, off. I was like, why do yeah. people care about this? Exactly. That's why yeah. and when, like, whenever something new like this comes along, I just don't have the, I personally don't have the bandwidth for the per, this the attention span to get a cyberspace yeah. uh, metaphor going. The bandwidth. Well, I think that's interesting. I sort of feel the same way Chris is describing in that I don't feel very connected with youth culture at the Mm -hmm. moment, but I do, every time I peek into it, I get really interested. Mm. And there's a kind of nice detachment where I don't feel like I need to keep up or anything. Yeah. But I also, I am interested and want to like, and I think what 20 year olds are making is pretty cool. I want to like know what kids are up to because what they're up to is all interesting. You need to listen to a hundred gecks. It's, it's, 
I can't even, it's hard for me to put into the words the feeling I had when I listened to 100 Guests. <laughs> I think I'm just subjected so to strange. them in, in environments that, like my work environment, like one of my jobs, I think that I, I get subjected to that style of music. So I have an awareness of it. But the songs are short, like you said. And yeah. there's only so much of that you can consume at a time. Totally, mm, which totally. makes it, I don't know. What I find interesting about that is like, I have a suspicion, again, I am clearly principal skinnering myself, but my suspicion is that younger people engage with music in an entirely different way oh, than yeah. my generation. I don't think yeah. that's a suspicion. Right. I think that we can confirm that. Yeah. Okay. And so like for me to, to listen to a hundred gecks and be like, this is, this music is bad according to the scale that I usually use to adjudicate whether or not music is bad is so fucking missing the right point. your scale your scales don't work anymore yeah exactly anymore. Yeah. wow and so listening so is that and a so listening issue, to that music and experiencing that feeling i'm like holy shit this is new in a way that mark fisher needs to understand like if if, if he were around for this he would be excited by 100 guests well, one thing I'm noticing, I, I skipped over this paragraph, but I think it's important to pull out because it pulls in uh, Fisher's underlying sort of the more interesting thread, I think, that Fisher weaves through this whole essay where he says, it's not that nothing happened in the period where the slow cancellation of the future set in. On the contrary, those 30 years have been a time of massive traumatic change. In the UK, the election of Margaret Thatcher has brought an end to the uneasy compromises of the post-war social consensus. Thatcher's neoliberal program in politics was reinforced by a transnational restructuring of the capitalist economy. The shift into so-called post-Fordism, with globalization, ubiquitous computerization, and the casualization of labor, resulted in a complete transformation in the way that work and leisure were organized. In the last 10 and 15 years, meanwhile, the internet and mobile telecommunications technology have altered the texture of everyday experience beyond all recognition. Yet perhaps because of all this, there's an increasing sense that culture has lost the ability to grasp and articulate the present. Or it could be that in one very important sense, there is no present to grasp and articulate anymore. This is a really interesting thread i think we've talked before about sort of neoliberalism's effects through the music industry on this sort of we've mentioned it many times before flattening of culture there's it's no seasons of, there's no culture there's no yeah yeah and so the way that neoliberalism kind of is the mechanism that causes this unease and and so why is it is it this destruction of the social consensus the destruction of any sort of a social basis that allows, again, I think it's really funny that someone like Simon Reynolds would be like, man, we put our lives on the line for this shit. It's like, dude, you had universal health care. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have that shit. I'm not putting my life on the line for anything or else I'm going to go into oh. fucking debtor, debtor's well, prison. We're talking about Thatcher era. That's a long, we've, it's been a long stretch of neoliberalism that's led us to this current moment where we're at. So it's, we can't really talk about, we, I don't know, I guess it's worth examining like, the original conditions of, for example, the late 70s, early or throughout the 80s, but what has happened since then and where are we now? Yeah, well, I know? mean, that's 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 one of Fisher's neoliberalism has transformed social conditions and made work precarious and made whatever that's that's, that's what he gets into in, in the last chunk yeah. where he talks about both of the sites of, of consumption and production. neoliberalism. Yeah, which is the most, I think, interesting part of the essay. Uh, I, I, 
it seems a little easy to me. I, 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 I a little too neat and tidy. I don't think it's quite that. I don't know. Like to, to just to say that, like, because he, he basically he says that it's no accident that the efflorescence of cultural invention in London and New York in the late 70s and early 80s coincided with the availability of squatted and cheap property in those cities. Uh, that seems way too neat and tidy to me. Just that, you, like, you can't compare a chunk from that time to now and have it be an equivalent. It's not. Or just, or just the, like the, the idea that like affordable housing is going to make great art is just that seems like a stretch to me. I don't mm-hmm. think so. I don't think that's I don't think that's a stretch at all, Sean, because it it enables the kind of creative freedom that you need to make excellent art. I mean, okay, listen. Like, obviously, I'm not not defending neoliberalism, uh, and obviously, I think life is easier when you don't have to worry about healthcare or where your next meal is coming from it, it, again though it just it, it seems way too neat and tidy to me because I, mean, I, I, I don't, I don't because I, I i i think there are just there are so many times when that's just not it, it hasn't mapped that neatly but the city of san francisco is essentially a case study in this phenomenon yep. and the way it affects artists and art scenes it is so is, so is new york sure well sh- yeah right it's just as the price of housing increases and reaches a point where the only way that you can afford to live in these cities is to work in tech or not create art as your main mode of expression, that's obviously going to constrict what people are able to do. And I mean, that, yeah, it's like I've seen it happen. And the type I, in the of past work that years. they can make. But like, okay, he's saying that this is the cause for lack of formal innovation within music. That doesn't... Th- th- I, I don't see a direct correlation there. I think there's I so many other cultural saying, factors. I don't know that he's necessary. Well, I mean, he's he's saying that in part, but I think an interesting thing, because he talks about here, like you said, the effect of this sort of speeding up and availability of everything at the same time, this sort of temporal dislocation. He speaks of the effects that has on both consumption and production. And in terms of production, he says here, he, he talks about housing like you're talking about, but he says... Producing the new depends upon certain kinds of withdrawal from, for instance, sociality as much as from pre-existing cultural forms. But the currently dominant form of socially networked cyberspace with its endless opportunities for micro-contact and its deluge of YouTube links has made withdrawal more than difficult than ever before. What do we think of that? I mean, so, okay, hold on. I, that, th- this is exactly what I've been talking about is if you look at, again, 100 Gex, the music... <laughs> is suffused <laughs> it's a it i'm it, it it is so contemporary in its form it is art that only could have been made when you have little time to make art and you are inundated and overwhelmed and s- subsumed by other media and that is where art is moving that is what art what the the production of art looks like in the contemporary area it is making really fast rapid short things mm-hmm. that reference a hundred million other things all at once. But it's, it's, should it be though? It's hyper postmodernism. Should or should not. It <laughs> is, it is the way it is. Yeah. Like that's right. that's the world we live in. And I mean, that's, I guess we're going back to be. Lil Nas X there too, right? Like absolutely. Kind of yeah. Perfect. Perfect example. Yeah. Perfect yeah. example. <laughs> perfect example. And yeah, that's, I, that's just the way it is. Cause I don't, you know, like I, I, I do agree that there's a sort of, as Fisher says, a withdrawal that I think does open up the possibility to create 
some good art. There is a sort of. I'm not know, sure what he like, means. I'm not sure exactly what he means by withdrawal there. So I think um, he means that if you separate, like almost like a like an ascetic stance where yeah. you separate yourself from the world and you steep yourself in your art for long enough, you're going to create something new and exciting. And I think that worked for a lot of people. But now if you talk to a 19 year old right, there's, who there's, has there's, Ableton, who has a cracked copy of Ableton and they're on two phones, 24 seven, <laughs> they're consuming TikToks, YouTubes and Snapchats at a literally insane pace it's it's funny too because so, th this is exactly like the scenario you're describing here is exactly what fisher and reynolds fetishized so much about grime and dubstep to begin with how so that it was like it's it's the new punk it's like the add generation with a crack like huh. a, a 200 laptop and a crack copy right. of fruity loops changing the world which we did all, okay that's that's the sickest story of this month is the confirmation that dubstep's 140 bpm tempo is because Fruity Loops is automatically set to 140 BPM. <laughs> that is so fucking sick. That is. I didn't know. I didn't hear. I didn't month. hear that. What's the source of that? That's fantastic. Dream uh, and a bunch of other OG forward guys were like, "Yeah, it, it was 140 B BPM because you open up Fruity Loops, and that's that's what it is." Yeah, so. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And like that, that right there, that's an example of what Fish is talking about, where it's just something inconsequential that sets the form for this movement. I don't think that's what Fisher's talking about. I think he, well, he's it, trying it, to talk about something. Yeah, he's trying to talk about something else. I think when he talks about withdrawal, yeah, it's a sort of asceticism. And I, you know, I think we all, if I get too cluttered in my thoughts, for example, then I don't produce any good thoughts. I need to like withdraw and find space, fucking meditate for a little bit. I need to like, clear out my brain to be able to construct any sort of new idea and in a way that I can't if I'm just fucking constantly scrolling on Twitter. We you know, are, I think the I think, same, I think Fisher's talking about that in terms of cultural product. And I agree. And I think we are now approaching forms of art that are created under total information overload. And it's, it's changed the way that I think about as a writer, I am so much more comfortable writing a Facebook post, for example, than I am sitting down post. and like, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And whether I agree that we're losing something by this kind of more ascetic composed style of art, no longer being the mode or even possible because people don't have the time like they used to. Right. Right. But it's just a fact of life that like cultural creation is now moving towards this hyper compressed all at once everything all together no longer than 90 seconds yeah form. yeah i think what's interesting is to say that i don't think it's useful to comment on whether or not the this is going on regardless right. it's just this is the world we live in yeah now i think it's shitty that that's the world we live in because i think it's shitty that people don't have any time because i think people should have free time like just right. across the board but I think it's where it starts to be a little like problematic or useless is to say, oh, this is bad because like the resulting culture is somehow bad. The resulting right, culture right. is a reflection of the time. It's no isn't Mark Fisher or kind worse of than, saying that though? Yeah, yeah. And Bur and he's quoting whoever Berardi is. I'm not sure. Like Berardi yeah. claims that culture has been de-eroticized because of this. Right existential terrain and i'm like i don't know if it's been de-eroticized i think it's been 
accelerated the eroticization. You know what I mean? And the eroticization is like even more easier to spot and we're getting so um, accustomed to it where it's just, there's nothing taboo, you know? Sure, I mean, just open could, up any, just open up TikTok. It's, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. So I, I would yeah. disagree. How has this been de- yeah. de-eroticized? I would completely disagree. But yeah. Yeah, especially as things become more intimate, especially as the quickest path towards success in being an artist is honestly to open yourself up yeah. to, to, to be as intimate with... To start you know, an OnlyFans. Yeah, to whether the only eroticization <laughs> makes it more erotic is a question. Are, are you, does oh, that make any sense? Yeah. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Wait, so. sorry, Katie, what, what, what did you say? I said whether the hyper-eroticization makes it more erotic is a mm. question maybe. I don't know if yeah. that... Is That's a question a very good that question. makes sense. Right. But. First, first you let the fellas see a bit of ankle and everyone's getting spun. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at some point. You got to start an OnlyFans. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like like Fisher and whoever Berardi is, I don't know. They're completely coming from this like emotional place. There's so much, there's just, everything is impossible because of these conditions. It, it, it's interesting, uh, CZ, you're, you're just, your focus on 100 Gex is really revealing to me the degree to which we've actually surpassed this 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 blockade that Fisher is kind of outlining here. Yeah. They're like, yeah. They're like the I culture mean, culture culture is not dead at all. It's moving faster than ever. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. 100%. <clears throat> um yeah, like like we neoliberalism has all sorts of terrible social effects and strange side effects and uh, yeah, there, there's a lot to poke into as far as the temporality of whatever crumbling capital, capitalism but uh, the idea that this has produced some kind of cultural impasse seems really dated. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the thing that I really like about this essay is how Fisher uses a cultural lens to investigate the underlying neoliberalism of the period. But what I and to judge that. But what I think is very dated and doesn't hold up is the judging of the culture itself. Totally. Especially because the culture that we're talking about is or that he's talking about here and that we're talking about in this episode is all like the interesting parts. There's a lot of the cultural ramifications of neoliberalism that are shit mm-hmm. um, that we're not talking about here at all because every whatever. Like different, friends. Like friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every different like era, every different mode of production and or whatever. They it- all have their own fucking culture and, you know. Didn't um, friends sucks, have a direct good. negative like impact on real estate in New York now? <laughs> like the inflation, it just fr- friends just equals inflation to me. That's friends just like what friends I think. Was, friends was gentrifying for sure. Oh yeah, gentrifying. Yeah. yeah, the rest of the essay I think is well worth a read, and I suggest to all of our listeners to maybe give it a read and think about it a bit. And I and I really do think the essay is quite is really worth reading, even though we've been pulling it apart and and stretching it. I have always really loved this essay, just because I think it's an interesting way to look at uh, the period Fisher was writing, and especially to think about now, where it does seem like history is kind of... We're stuck in this mode of history fucking slamming on the gas, but also fucking spinning its wheels the whole time. You know, we all feel personally in limbo in this weird limbo, liminal space, and yet everything is happening very fast. The essay is an interesting way, written at a time where everything seemed very static. Everything in 2010 seemed really static. Everything around, there was like the glimmer of Occupy, which was the only like thing, and the Arab Spring, which was the only like thing in history that like 
seem to be shaking yeah, anything. Yeah. <clears throat> and but I think it's interesting because what he brings up here is I think quite relevant in this sort of bizarre time we live in right now. It's wild to me to think back to 2010 and be like, <laughs> that was literally 10 years ago. That makes not no like sense. 65? A feels... lot of time has passed. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Guess, I yeah. Guess I right. think it feels both. Oh, <laughs> right. It really feels does. like three yeah. years yeah. ago and also, yeah. Yeah, 200. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Obama being president feels like 500 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it does. But, <laughs> really? but like Blawan getting me down. <laughs> Feels like that came out, I don't know, five years ago or something. <laughs> so like it, on different modes, on different like planes of existence, uh, totally. like time feels stretched in some ways and totally fucking collapsed. In totally. Other ways. I'm yearning for that, f- the form of 1989. That's where my nostalgia is at these days. Cause I feel like that was just a pivotal moment. And um, I was born in 1989. Oh, so wow. yeah, I agree. Wow. Yeah. It was <laughs> monumental. Now we're down in it. I was up above it. Now we're <laughs> down in it. What is he actually saying in that song? Like I was like, I've always like He's wondered. Up above it. Like where is he? I love it. I think it's extremely poetic, and I'm like trying to absorb it and trying to like really understand where Trent is coming from. I I, I just get big incel vibes from that from that whole record. <laughs> but not on that track. That track is just like a very ex. It's pure existentialism. It was- it was okay to be an incel back then. It was different. <laughs> That's very true. That's it very was cool. True. Okay. <laughs> it, it, yeah. I mean, it was different. Pre Columbine, it was cool. <laughs> but but Down even in the incels the were different back album. then. The incels they were, were. Everything <laughs> were way over time. So this has been Basecamp Beta. Is there anything smart to say at the end of this? I don't know. Thanks what for do listening. we usually say? Subscribe. Like and subscribe. We should come up with something for next time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>